0: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio accentuated eccentric loading, velocity-based training, and clusters. Oh, baby. This week's episode with Dr. John Waggle was Satisfy Your Need for Speed. Hear how he studied the squat as a vehicle for testing velocity. His method was tested using weight releasers and cluster sets, and what he found was that adding 30 seconds rest within each rep allowed for the athlete to continue smashing that weight at a relatively high velocity. And we are all about replication of speed at Power Athlete. Here he is, Dr. John Waggle, this is episode 288.
1: Power Athlete Nation, John, rub your coat for me. Do you hear that? The loudest coat in history. It's on the Power Athlete Radio. I thought that was,
2: I thought that was Texas rubbing his knees together with his fancy jeans, with corduroys. No, this is Power Athlete China. Radio featuring John's coat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought I was special guest, and my coat is special guest. Okay, story checks out. Oh, so now we're going to have a fucking dress code email sent over, and looks like, hey, uh, you know, can you please uh, subscribe to the dress code, which means that no loud puffy coats on the podcast. No loud
1: puffy coats, no pants. It's been that way since fucking <laughs> episode one. Where have you been, man? <laughs> no wonder Texas,
2: uh, little Texas, so cold.
1: Speaking of Texas, Power Athlete Nation, it's that time again. For the premier podcast in... Strength Strength and and conditioning. conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. 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 I think you got an ing, ing, ing shirt coming, folks. If we just get 50 more emails to Harry, H-A-R-R-Y, at
2: PowerAthleteHQ.com. Am I wrong? No, and with subject line... I want the ing.
1: I want the ing. Bring the
2: ing. Bring ing
1: ing bring the ing. Bring the
2: action. No, bring the ing.
1: ing. Bring ing ing the ing ing is what you got to send. And you might even be one of the lucky winners <laughs> of the free ing 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 shirt giveaway that started this second right now. <laughs> bring ing uh, ing, ing, picture, ing ing
2: ing. I picture Harry opening these emails and being like, ah. These, fucking, these, these
1: asshole pricks. I can't wait to see him in a few weeks because it's symposium time, people. Yep. Speaking of what's going to occur over the next few weeks, I believe that you have a tax to pay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you to all of our gracious donors out in Power Athlete Nation who helped Wade's army raise a ton of fucking money this year. One of our biggest years, our biggest year, yeah. if, I, if I know. We're still tallying the numbers. We're doing a recount. But what we know for a fact is that Mr. McQuilkin has raised over $20,000 alone as an
2: individual fundraiser thanks to your generous donations. And what that means is... He's getting his whole upper body waxed, including his armpits and forearms, no. and he's getting a tramp stamp of a butterfly on the small of his back tattooed. The tat uh-huh. That was the a one. secret one, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't worry. We're throwing that one in. Yeah. Just a small little butterfly. So, so you, when Tex you know passes why? out
1: from the waxing, we're going to tat him up with a butterfly on <laughs> the small of Dude, his back. Dude, wouldn't it be great if he, had, <sighs> if
2: he had a tramp stamp of a butterfly? Oh, my God. Maybe he does, and that's why he doesn't want to shave his fucking lower back. (laughs) What about when he takes his whole hair off? If he has, like, a Viking fighting a sea demon with a sun on his chest, and we just never knew it. I didn't even know about it. What say you, Dex?
1: What say you? (laughs) <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, I may have alluded and fabricated I think
2: that
3: was a thank you.
1: Some I may have fabricated some uh, some of the logistics and details. It turns out that we just simply do not have the time to have every symposium attendee pull a wax strip off of Texas body and take it home but for a souvenir. If you
2: make a wild donation of $500 or more, you get the nipples.
1: Yes. <laughs> we will be potentially auctioning off the nipples. No. Yeah. Hold my hand, it's the nipples. <laughs> uh-uh. So, no, let's fill our listeners in, because I think every all six or seven of them want to know. What are the logistics? What is the timeline? What can we expect? Are there going to be cameras there? I thought we
2: were going to uh, like tar and feather. We were just going to get a bunch of tar, cover them in tar, feather them, and then pl- pluck him like a chicken.
1: That's what I thought, but it's, I don't know if that's what's going on. Text, what, tell us. Fill us in.
2: No, I contacted the lady on Craigslist who does this we're on not the side. We're I don't want a
3: side hustle wax job. We're gonna find we're gonna find a professional
2: that's going to do this right. Wait, per like professional waxing or like professional side hustle? Because there's pros on Craigslist. Like so. a pro. Yeah, so we might be able to get your you know your pepper cracked and your body waxed. <laughs> Can we start the show, please? <laughs> no, I need to know the details. Yeah, because I googled uh, professional pepper cracker. And she she said she's more than willing to have me to double pepper crack you. you John
1: Wellborn's coat. Quiet for one minute.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Episode two ninety crew. You'll hear the recap.
1: Okay, so it's happening by two ninety. Oh yeah, Sonic. We're going after two ninety. Two ninety. What? So do you have like? Well, she's not a lady unless she's two ninety. So, Tex, in your mind, do you know? Do you know how? Like, how do you envision it going down? Because John clearly has a vision that I'm aligned with, but and we're all aware of it. What is your vision? Bottom line is, there's
3: going to be a film crew there. Okay. And then so the have, Power yeah. Athletic crew will be there. Actually, Power there's athlete.
2: not okay. a film crew, but what we did is we got GoPros. So the, the lady's going to be wearing a GoPro. You're going to be wearing a Go, GoPro. There's going to be one facing. We're just going to have like 20 GoPros I don't everywhere. I think
3: you got 20 GoPros.
2: Uh, we do. And you know what's going to happen? Is then we're going to take all that GoPro footage and we're just going to like kind of do like, sc- like four or five screen boxes. Mm-hmm. So you get to like almost like a security cam, you get to watch them all at the same time.
1: Okay. So what's your vision, Tex? I want to know your vision. Where's the location?
3: Where's I got to I got to hunt down cuz
1: Oh, I you haven't even found a location yet.
3: Who is going to allow two bros to watch another bro wax down?
1: Tons of people.
2: Yeah, we're going to do it here at the barn where it's nice and cold.
1: <laughs> so we're going we're going to be going on location to some area, kind of like 40 or uh it's 40-year-old virgin or
2: Yeah, yeah uh the Texman Yeah, Like two bags of sand?
1: <laughs> right? Okay, so we're going on location, the crew, a camera crew and we're recording, right? Uh, so God. people will get to see
2: some version of basically they're going to take the uh, 5 hours it's going to take there's a, into a 5 minute clip. There's okay. a place I think it's called a, now, a Wall of China massage parlor that also does waxing. Now so that's where we that's where we're, we're going to take him.
1: Text how okay
2: I hope it's a real what seedy regions, and they serve drinks. What
1: regions are you expecting to get rat waxed?
2: The taint? No. How much for the taint? Back, chest, Arms, Cut. armpits, chest, no, nipples. arms are off.
1: Okay, so back belly, and chest.
2: But be- your belly, too. Yeah. Uh, back, chest, belly. Belly's going to hurt the most. Love handles? Like how low? Shoulders? Like below the belly button or like above the belly button? Shoulders? And I suppose you can inner throw shoulders in. Your man inner pubes? pubes? Man pubes? From, your yeah. ball fro. <laughs> From chest pubes down on my ball fro. No. Uh, the taint. <laughs> no. To the cornhole. So we're doing no lower body. What about no. small the back okay. where your tramp stamp is? is there, no me- armpits, no arms. Whoa, whoa 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 you can't throw the brakes on this thing like when you okay. said upper body i want like i from, didn't say I, body. I want from the chin to your pubes from my
1: chest pubes to my ball for okay so you're not expecting just to, i just want to be clear i'm just asking questions <laughs> what about your knuckles you're not expecting no you're not expecting any lower body waxing no okay well
2: can we rip off quado? no <laughs> all right okay so ladies My and gentlemen without belaboring this we now
1: happy. have texas vision and you've heard john's vision as well what we know about these things john's coat's vision is that reality exists somewhere between the extremes and i am excited we, to find out what the we live is. between the fucking <laughs>
2: rails where are you you know normally we're up on the rails and then we go to the other rail but reality somewhere in between the two up on the rails that's AKA right adam people. nelson Got to so, live on the rails.
1: I can't. I mean, I don't know if I'm excited for you or nervous. I'm just. Oh, I'm anxious. Yeah. It's going to be a good one, ladies and gentlemen. But guess what? That's not happening today on Power Athlete Radio. If you're if you tuned in for strength and conditioning information for the first time, and I don't know, fucking 40 episodes, we've got some for you,
2: dude. Oh. Uh, I like I, I just kind of forget that we're the you know, number one strength and conditioning show on premiere premiere. Strength and Conditioning Podcast. Yeah, podcast in Strength and Conditioning.
1: Ing, ing, ing. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we have Dr. John Waggle. It's a battle of the Johns. Wagg's text, you ran across him at various conferences. It connected years ago when he
3: was the head Strength and Conditioning Coach for DePaul Men's Basketball. So just through a friend of mine that from UT connected us, and then I ran into him every single conference, and we're the two guys that had hair and no goatees. So naturally, we connected.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, Come we in. talk a little bit of velocity-based training. We talk uh, about some of the studies that, that Wags took on, getting his uh, master's degree. Pretty good no, stuff. No, PhD. A PhD. He's a yeah. doctor. He's, yeah. he's, he's doctor. He's got doctor. a player-hating right. degree. Nice. All right, tune in, people. It's happening. Power Athlete Radio. Here we go. Um, all right, so I guess to, to
3: introduce, John was a coach at DePaul with one of my buddies, Nick Higgins, and he connected with me at a conference and i started seeing him at every conference from
2: here on out and hey, you? were you stalking him is that why you were seeing him yep, at every back. conference he's back. like no hey, it's just hey, pale guys. Hey, we found each other i'm tex McWilkin. hey it's good to see you again you're like um, <laughs> no we we were the only two guys without a shaved head and a goatee so we oh, actually and, and no uh up. no under uh under armor performance polo the uniform oh,
4: uh, maybe Wait. I had a Nike I had a Nike one for a while. Ooh, right. Yeah,
2: the the uniform is shaved head goatee, uh performance polo from Under Armour and a what is it? Uh the a short s- temper? No, it's like a um the uh the sto- with uh, I forgot on the blood pressure. It's the uh the stolic and the what's the other one? Systolic, diastolic. Yeah, uh, of histolic? over. Th- yeah, I don't know. Yep. Of over three hundred and one fifty minimum. And then well, uh, isn't
1: that the high school strength it's, coaches it's conference? Sweaty. Yeah. It's like diabetes or strength yeah. coach. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: So we went to the Texas High School Coaches Convention and we were playing the game. We're it's, like diabetes or strength coach, high school strength coach, and it was pretty it was pretty apparent. So it's good. Yeah. All
3: right. So John, take it from there, man. How did you get to DePaul? I know you then well,
2: are,
4: we, are we recording now? Yeah, that... we
2: are. We're, oh yeah, we record everything. Don't worry, yeah, we edit all this stuff later, so it really pairs it down. Callie really pairs us down to, like, three or four minutes. Mm-hmm. So we'll oh. talk for two hours, but she just hacks us out. because Yeah, out. just
1: so here's how the post-production goes. Callie just edits everything we say out, and then you have an amazing show, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> spouting off... Um,
2: beautiful knowledge for our listeners but maybe. what she so, does yeah, is no. she actually records her thoughts
4: <laughs> yeah. and so she
2: has a conversation with you and just gets rid of us and yeah, it actually sorry, turns out I'm great
4: Misunderstood, but, so, uh, yeah, sorry. what's the question
2: <laughs> <laughs> go ahead text. so why is tech stalking you <laughs> journey yeah
3: share their journey. journey with our listeners man i i know we intersected so, at depaul but there's so much before that and there's so much more after
4: yeah yeah so i was i had a Kind of an interesting uh, journey into strength conditioning. I played four years of college baseball, uh, a little small school in my hometown uh, that I'm very proud of called Augustana. Um, And from there, I was fortunate enough to uh, have the opportunity to play two years of independent baseball, Um, had a really brief uh, cup of coffee uh, with uh, some organizations, but nothing really nothing really panned out. Um so when I decided to uh to retire from baseball what I missed more than anything um was the preparation was the off season was kind of that uh that hope that you have in every off season that you can do better in the next one um and so that's what kind of actually drove me to strength conditioning cuz I, I was coaching baseball during the off seasons while I was still uh playing independent ball and so you know, that missing of the off season led me to say, well, maybe I want to focus my career on uh, the strength conditioning side of things. And and at first, I wasn't uh, formally educated uh, in exercise science or anything like that. I was actually a physics major uh, at Augustana. And so kind of had to make a little bit of a transition. I, I quit coaching and spent an entire day in the lobby of DePaul university because I was living in Chicago at the time. So I spent an entire day in the lobby of DePaul university, uh, waiting for the opportunity to talk to the then director, Matt Calloway, uh, to try to beg him for an interview. Um, and so I'm sitting there with a full suit on all day, just waiting for the chance to talk to Mac. And unfortunately it it was one of those days where there was a bunch of men's basketball things going on and stuff like that. So I was sitting there for quite a while, uh, but eventually I got the chance to talk to Mac and um, took an internship uh, with DePaul, which ended up being a uh, really, really, really good opportunity to meet some people that, you know, I still remain very close with today. I, I kind of take every opportunity to uh, sing my praises of Matt Calloway because I, I look back on this thing and it's, you know, everybody that uh, has an opportunity to do good things in this field had somebody take a chance on them at some point, like to break into this field, somebody had to take a, a really big chance on you. And Mac was, was that guy for me. And so now basically my, my whole day to day, my whole existence is to try to prove him right. Um, and so Mac was, was a really good mentor for me. Um, met some really good people at DePaul. Uh, from there, I had to kind of cross off the formal education piece, uh, that I was lacking. And so, uh, Western Illinois University was uh, my next stop. I worked with a director there named Drew Kramer uh, while I was getting my master's in exercise science um, and learning a ton. Getting the opportunity to work with football uh, and a bunch of other teams there was was really really great. Um, and then I uh, I actually had a paid internship at the University of Georgia under Katrin Koch that I never went to. I had a had a lease. I had a I, you know, an apartment, I had, a you know, everything going. I was in my car driving down to Athens and DePaul called me, uh, offering me an assistant position. And so I uh, turned around and went back to Chicago and started working as an assistant um, at DePaul because Jimmy Duba, who was an assistant at the time, uh, left to take the UNC Charlotte men's basketball gig. So I kind of went into the staff as a, as a full-time coach then. Um, Did that for a year and then was promoted uh, to the director position when Mac, my hero, uh, he left uh, to kind of devote more time to his family. Um, So I I was promoted into the director position from there. Kind of a a right place, right time uh, kind of situation. DePaul was very, very good to me. I have nothing but good things to say about that place. Um, So I did that job for almost three years. Worked with a great head coach named Dave Lato. I also worked under Oliver Purnell. Um, and I had a really good staff. That's where I, I brought uh, Nick Higgins in to be an assistant. One of the best decisions I, I ever made uh, was, was to grab him. And then Chris Drescher was an absolute rock star that was already on staff with women's basketball and some things. So we had a really good staff. I was really, really proud of them. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I decided to uh, break that band up after three years and kind of took the took the dive to go back to school. And I, I really did that because um, I'm a big believer in formal education, first of all. And I thought that if you want to be uh, really, really good at this and right or wrong, I, I thought that I could be really, really good at this one day. Um, and I, I think you have to go just try to surround yourself with legends. And all roads pointed to Johnson City, Tennessee. At East Tennessee State University, where there's, you know, Mike Stone, Brad Deweese, Meg Stone, Kimmy Sato, Mike Ramsey, like the, the list is is absolutely ridiculous uh, of the people that you get to study under and learn from. Um, and so I, I quit my job that I loved so much um, and moved to the middle of Tennessee or East Tennessee and uh, was there for again almost three years. And then this opportunity. Uh, with the Kansas City Royals came up, which was just an absolutely uh, perfect fit that I'm really excited to to get going with. But there's my my very long-winded journey that uh, has led me to the chair I'm sitting in right now.
1: And how long have you been doing what you're
2: doing now?
4: Uh, five or six weeks.
2: Oh, oh wow. fresh. Yeah. So where are you yeah. living in uh, Kansas City?
5: Uh, it, I'm actually based out of Arizona, and I'm in Surprise, Arizona. Okay. See. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I know Surprise.
4: Oh, yep. OK.
5: Yep. So my current role is the minor league strength conditioning coordinator. So we have uh, seven affiliates uh, and then we have a strength coach assigned to each one of those. And I kind of oversee that operation.
2: Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, John, no, congratulations, uh, well, man. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. I was worried that yeah, you were yeah, in I Kansas can't. City. I, I I had to live in Kansas City for four years. So I was like, oh, man, I hope you don't live in KC.
5: Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, hope you're a Royals fan.
2: Uh, well, I played for the Chiefs. Oh, very good. Yeah, very yeah. Good. So I played Monacross for the Chiefs for, yeah, four years. So I lived out in Overland Park and then lived down by the plaza and all that. So,
4: yeah, uh, very
2: good. Yeah, I just, yeah, Kansas City was, uh, I, I played in Philly before that and it was kind of a cool town. I came to Kansas City, which was, I mean, but actually it's better now. So, but no, sure. it's cool. Yeah. No, awesome. So with the, uh, w- w- Forgive my ignorance on this. Uh, we worked with a bunch of baseball guys, and I never quite understand how the whole thing works in terms of like independent ball, farm teams, you know, this, you know, triple A, single A. Like, so like the, uh, I, I just know some of the guys that we've worked with have gone through this. It seems like a labyrinth of like, you know, playing football, it's like you go to college, you get drafted, you either yep. play or you don't. So then like three just, steps, yeah, like yeah. Uh, smash in high school, this, this <laughs> like this incredible road to like being able to get to the majors is unbelievable. Sure. Like, uh, is. so Good where job. like, like, where do you sit within are, are you in like the trip? Like, uh, like, where do you sit in that?
4: So uh, in terms of my current role or where I was at yeah. as a player?
2: Well, yes. well, yeah. well! You had a cup of coffee, which in
4: well, <laughs> not they, literally. He doesn't they drink use, coffee. <laughs> they use that yeah.
2: term in the NFL that the dude showed up for. You know, the coffee yeah. didn't even uh, get cold.
4: As a player, I I, um, I was exclusively in independent ball, which um, was a really good opportunity for me. I was a Division three guy that got the chance to hell yeah professionally. So like that was really awesome, um, and I was very grateful for that. Uh, I had a really good first year. Uh, you know. I, Played like I think I was capable of playing Uh, and the Rays invited me down just to have a look at me. Uh, They were looking to fill some spots in like double a or somewhere around there. You know, it's kind of all been 10 years, Uh, but I I didn't show up and do very well. And so they sent me right back home and I went back to independent ball uh, for a second year and didn't do so well. And so then after that, I decided to retire and go into strength conditioning and all that. But uh, so independent ball is kind of a, it, it, is for people like me that maybe didn't get signed out of college or get drafted out of college and gives them an opportunity to showcase what they can do. But it's also an opportunity for players that, uh, get released from the affiliated organizations or, uh, you know, didn't quite make it or contracts didn't work out or, you know, whatever the case may be and it gives them an opportunity to still, uh, play some really competitive baseball. I mean, I, I, I've, heard from people who actually played in affiliated baseball that it's, you know, it's very competitive, the talent levels there. Um, And it's just a, it's a really fun environment because winning is really, really important too. And so uh, it it was a lot of fun. I'm glad that I got to do it.
3: Cool. And you're able to get back to your first love baseball, right? After their quick
4: I was. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Very lucky. And especially being from the Midwest, um, you know, it's kind of special to, be with a a major league organization that's based out of the Midwest too. I mean, you you always uh, like to be involved with something that's relatively close to home, Uh, especially I am from a small town and I I value that connection. Uh, Even though I'm based out of Arizona, you know, obviously we're, we're all trying to move the ship in the direction to bring a world series to to Kansas city. So it, it makes it special because it's in the Midwest. It makes it special because it's baseball Um, it it makes it special for a lot of reasons. So yeah, I'm, I'm beyond grateful to start this next journey.
3: Awesome, man. I want to begin our conversation into what you studied. So I know velocity based training is really starting to, to take over and people are really diving into this understanding of speed. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to start where, where did the motivation come from to focus on that topic and then really, what did you start to unfold throughout your time at East Tennessee?
4: Yeah, um, so I, I've, gosh, I got to be involved in so much research there. It was, it was great because that was one of the hats I wanted to put on. You know, I'd been a coach for so long uh, that I wanted to kind of dive into the lab and and see what, see what was going on in that regard. Uh, mostly because it really lets me uh, read research with a much greater appreciation or uh, at times critical eye. Uh, but, uh, you know, the uh, the crux of my dissertation was accentuated eccentric loading. And part of that uh, with like weight releasers and all that cool stuff, uh, really, really heavy squats. But part of that was looking at the differences in barbell velocity across uh, four different load conditions, actually. So we looked at accentuated eccentric loading. And just by the nature of it, with the weight releasers, you have to, you know, put them back on every repetition if you want to overload each repetition. And so it inherently becomes a cluster. And so we looked at accentuated eccentric clusters, and then we looked at traditionally loaded clusters. So no weight releasers looked at the differences between those. And then we also did traditionally loaded straight sets. So just a regular old set of back squats, no, no rest in between repetitions. And then the last one was kind of a unique load condition that was explored for the first time. Uh, which was you know, out of the brain of Dr. Mike Stone uh, that he, you know, he said like, Hey, what if we just overloaded the first repetition and then did the subsequent four without the weight releasers on. So now you don't have to uh, provide inner repetition rest. You, it, you just do your squat and then you continue going with the, with the next three or four or however many you're doing in the set. And so those are kind of the four things that we looked at in my dissertation. And, and part of it was um, exploring uh, those kinematics with barbell velocity. We also, we, you know, we had it hooked up to an entire potentiometer and all that. So we were able to do synchronized force plate collection, uh, do power outputs, do rate of force development, do all of that stuff as well. But our findings looking at the differences between those four load conditions um, was basically that if you give people rest, like in a cluster set, their velocities are higher. Uh, the force outputs aren't altered as much as the as the velocities but you know it's it's kind of logical but there's not a ton of literature on cluster sets and there's even less on accentuated eccentric loading and so pretty much you know these are you have to answer the simple questions first and that's kind of what we aimed to do Um, but you know we didn't explore any of the You know, other aspects of it, like velocity loss, we haven't gotten to that yet. We obviously have the data um, and we're going to take a look at it. We did um, publish a paper in sports that looked at kind of average changes in rep one to rep three and rep one to rep five. Um, You know, and again, the the findings kind of came out all roses for cluster sets. Um, And we did find some interesting things with that uh, first repetition only. Uh, configuration. I know I'm on kind of a tangent. You asked about velocity based training. But no, 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 it's beautiful.
2: No, no. I'm super interested on the clusters. Can you give us like the parameters of rest on the cluster and then like uh, a oh, percentage yeah. of one RM? I mean, like uh, just some of the,
5: yeah, I probably should have led with that. My apologies. Uh, so it was
2: guys listening that don't know what cluster sets are it's usually you perform one heavy set or one sorry one heavy rep and then you put it in and you rest a certain amount of time and then you take another uh it's a really good way to get like a um you know i guess you could say like a high load high volume set uh you know and using fatigue but there's a, i'm sure you're going to like a million different factors from like yeah. base level of conditioning rate of force i mean all these things are you know i mean we, we've we used cluster sets pretty well um but only do it at certain points in the training. I, I don't know oh, how sustainable yeah. they are.
5: <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, this is actually something I, um, uh, I just spoke on in North Carolina last week. Uh, it was, you know, for Nate Brookerson invited me out to do one of the NSCA state events. And so that's kind of the, the cool thing about clusters is they're, I think a little bit more versatile than they get the credit for being, um, I think we can improve the quality, and by that I mean the velocities the power outputs, things like that, but we can also improve the quantity, so the the work being done. Um, and that improving the quality piece is kind of what Tex was originally asking about, and that, that stems from Comey's original work that in like five to nine maximal contractions, you start to see drop-offs in force, rate of force development, bunch of metabolites come in and so like in order to maintain those velocities those power outputs or even the the movement quality or the technique you give people rest um and and so in the case of my dissertation work we gave them 30 seconds rest in between every repetition um and uh it was set at 80 percent of one rm for us for three sets of five and that was the same across all of our load conditions minus that we removed the the rest in certain conditions, but, uh, but we kept the loading the same. And basically what we aimed to explore with this is does providing this rest, uh, permit higher velocities, permit higher power outputs. And our answer was yes. Um, now AEL, uh, had some unique characteristics in terms of uh, eccentric rate of force development tended to be higher, uh, when the overload was applied and uniquely, Uh, When you only overloaded the first repetition, uh, the subjects tended to hold on to um, those elevated eccentric rate of force development characteristics for two subsequent reps. So you saw the same as if the weight releasers were still on in rep two and in rep three, but they weren't there anymore.
2: And where, so, uh, where, where were the weight releasers, uh, coming off? Like if you guys don't know what weight releases are, imagine like a, a plate with a, you know, like a little plate welded through and then like a hook that goes over the top of the bar. Yeah. And then as you go down, the plate actually hits the ground and releases yeah. uh, so as least that's the way we use them. I know there's yeah. other ways you can like pull a pin and stuff, but like, so sure. where, where in the, uh, eccentric phase where the weight releasers coming off,
5: uh, at the very bottom of the squat.
2: So like a below parallel accentuation yeah. phase. Yeah.
5: We had to, I mean, we had, every one of our subjects was a full squatter. So we, we had some really good data in that regard. The, the like letter of the law in our research papers, um, was, uh, hip crease below the patella. Uh, but just, you know, anecdotally watching, we, we had full squatters in, in every, in every case. Um, and we also provided them weightlifting shoes, which helped. Uh, so one, so they could have standardized footwear, but two, so we could have, uh, deeper squats that were going to give us a better representation of, of what was actually happening. Cause that's always the tricky thing about, um, squat studies or, you know, in general is that man can squat look squats can look a lot different depending well, on
2: anthropometrical uh, ratios. I mean, you get a dude's long legged and, you know, short upper yeah. body and all of a sudden he's, you know, he's doing like yeah, some so weird so good we had, morning. We had a
5: pretty, pretty homogenous group, um, in terms of anthropometrics. And more importantly, we had a really strong group our average um back squat to body mass ratio is 1.8 so mm-hmm. like they're they're so pretty
2: these strong. were advanced like like advanced lifters who yeah. you know had had um you know an understanding of movement patterns and had trained so they mm-hmm. were you know and what's interesting is most of the studies and this is what i always hate is is always trained it was always done on like untrained individuals whenever i right. read any of this stuff it's always like untrained individuals i'm like Okay. So, but, yeah. but what do we know about untrained individuals? They can basically go beat yeah. on a snare drum and their squat goes up. So it's like, uh, that's why I always, whenever I th- see things like this, I always look for the ones where it's like, oh, we used uh, advanced or trained individuals.
5: Right. And part, part of the rationale with that, um, because we were looking at eccentric overload, I tend to think that, you know, part of the limiting factor that makes it, makes AEL an advanced tactic is that that overload can alter technique. And so by having advanced lifters, we limited that. Um, And you can see it, actually, that we didn't alter the mechanics of the movement uh, substantially. You can see it from the potentiometer data. Um, Like eccentric durations were still the same, and horizontal displacements were still the same, and vertical displacements were still the same. All that stuff checked out uh, that we had congruency across our load conditions. But that was part of it, is that, like, well, if we're going to put 105 percent which was our eccentric overload uh prescription if we're gonna put 105 uh, percent of concentric one rm on somebody's back like we don't want their uh just ability to maintain the natural mechanics of their back squat to be a limiting factor um and, and so yeah i think that um that's a really really important piece. so 80 percent
2: was on the bar 80 percent was on the bar and you guys went up another 25 on the weight releasers
5: yeah. Yep. Yep. And one one thing that uh, we kind of elucidated from our findings was that maybe we needed to have a greater relative difference between the eccentric and concentric because we we didn't with the overload. You know, part of the the theory behind that is to induce some concentric potentiation, uh, and it's very theoretically sound, but we didn't observe it. And if you look at the literature overall, there is a complete mixed bag on who induces potentiation and who induces fatigue. And you're, you you know, you're on that fine line as it is. Um, and we were on the side of fatigue, unfortunately. Um, but I think part of that was because we only had a 25% difference between the eccentric and the concentric 105 to 80. And if you like, we didn't even think about looking at the load prescription in this manner until after the fact, um, we arrived at 105 and 80 because we kind of looked at
4: the literature overall, looked at the eccentric and looked at the concentric separately and said like, well, these are the, these are the loads that tend to give favorable results. But uh, what we kind of failed to see was that relative difference piece. And when you look at it again, from that angle, you started to see 30, 40, 60% differences were the ones that um, were having potentiation effects. And so I think we might have been just inside a maybe magical window of 30%. Um, That was the reason we induced fatigue in our subjects uh, rather than having them experience potentiation. So what you're Uh,
2: saying is that you were too heavy on the concentric that if you, you know, because the 105, but if you had maybe lightened it to like six, you know, if you look at like the dynamic stuff, I mean, compensator acceleration, usually 65, 70% is kind of where they, you know, and I know that the, the biggest track is if you're doing the speed work and it's too heavy and you can't move the bar fast, it's like a negative effect against you. And we saw that with the Tendo.
5: I I think that's probably where I would go is to lighten the concentric. Um, But it's also, you know, maybe worth the inquiry of what if you increase the eccentric. Uh, So, you know, I don't know how magical that relative difference is or if it was a concentric load prescription problem. Um, and, And so that's, you know, calling all researchers to, you know, maybe explore some some future avenues with this. But it, it, there are still such basic questions with AEL and clusters that we don't know the answer to, like the ones that, you know, you're talking about. And so I, I kind of hope more than anything that um, there's kind of a jumping off point to keep exploring these things
2: did did you guys do any controls of the athletes like um i don't know like any like jumps or plyos or you know anything where like you know you observed everybody you know one dude had like an 18 inch vertical another guy has a 40 inch vertical and that guy's you know inherently genetically for trained faster or were there any like you know because i know whenever we do any of our testing stuff i always throw things out there so i can get rid of the outliers You know, where all of a sudden you're like, "Wow, this dude was able to move," you know, at X amount of speed, but yet that dude's got a 40 inch vertical, and you're like, "Well, there's some genetics involved in that." Like, yeah, you know, Um,
5: kind of, kind of funny. You should ask. We we did a lot of that. Um, It was kind of a completely separate uh, study. Uh, We collected ultrasound of the vastus lateralis cross-sectional area, muscle thickness, penetration angles. Uh, We drew blood. And from that did genotyping. So we did like actin-3 and ACE uh, genotyping. Um, We did fiber-specific cross-sectional area from muscle biopsies um, and fiber-specific cross-sectional area distribution uh, from those same bassus lateralis muscle biopsies. It was actually taken from the same site uh, as our ultrasound. Um, And along with that, we did an isometric squat so not we didn't do jumps but you know people do an isometric mid thigh pull because we were doing a squat study we did an isometric squat um so we set the knee angle at 100 degrees uh which is you know right around sticking point and uh just did isometric characteristics from there did rate force development impulse characteristics um allometrically scaled peak force peak force all that basically looked at um how Those characteristics, the genetic characteristics influenced potentially because we only looked at two candidate genes, uh, the fiber characteristics, the whole muscle characteristics, um, as well as the force production capabilities of those people. Um, And then we did a one RM back squat as well. And that's how we assigned load. So kind of to not leave the the squat load conditions just yet, like that was kind of our um, number one for load prescription, but number two to see how strong these people were. Um, and you know, what you tended to see was that strong people, uh, in terms of the AEL and the clusters, they tended to perform uh, a little
4: bit better, but it wasn't, um, statistically slow necessarily, but I think a lot of that just comes from, uh, everybody was pretty strong. <laughs> and so it was hard to, to differentiate, uh, between like weak and strong with a, with a population class like that, because I think we. I mean, we had, uh, I think, four subjects that were north of double body weight, and then all the other ones kind of hovered around that 1.5 to 1.8 uh, range. So, yeah, but, you know, long story short, we, we collected a lot of information on our subjects and did it really well. I mean, I, it, it was my first kind of large-scale research project, and so your head's spinning a little bit, but um, got to go in a wet lab and, you know, pipette and do genotyping and biopsy staining and all that cool stuff too so yeah we we looked at a lot of stuff
2: what was the one takeaway from it like if you could say hey you know here's the one thing that i learned from all the research or one thing that's actionable like if i'm listening at home and i hear all this great stuff and i hear about clusters and this like i always think like what's the one thing that i could change in my life or at least like what did the study do i I remember reading like a study where they designed like little backpacks for shrimp to breathe underwater for the mca you remember that one with they they built little like treadmills for the shrimp and little breathing apparatuses. They spent like, it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars to fabricate these mini treadmills for shrimp. And I'm reading this fucking thing and I'm like, um, what can I action off of this? Like, you know, I, I'm I'm just amazed at the peel made, and eat. <laughs> they, peel and eat. That somebody, <laughs> I'm more amazed that somebody fabricated mini treadmills for shrimp. And then I wanted to know how they tested it. Like, there was a, a whole bunch of other questions. But we like, need to get
1: our hands on one of those treadmills for
2: <laughs> McQuilkin over here. <laughs> you mean? The, <laughs> 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 but like, <laughs> huh? uh, well, I can shrimp, uh, shrimp, uh, a shrimp treadmill. Maybe we can talk to you guys <laughs> at uh, true form But for listeners, McQuokin's not entertained. <laughs> you well, know, he did, you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why he would be entertained, but like what would be the one thing that you could like take away and say, Hey, you know what? Like being able to incorporate clusters within your sets, or if you're doing any type of speed work to use clusters so that the quality of the movement, I'm just wondering what the one takeaway would be.
4: Yeah. For the cluster sets, it, it, it kind of actually just um, puts more into the previous work of like Dr. Hoff and, and those folks and that the cluster's, are probably best applied uh towards the late stages of like a periodized training plan following you know i I come from the the school of phase potentiation um and, and so it probably fits better there uh towards the end number one you'll have you know lesser metabolite accumulation so you're maybe going to fatigue them a little bit less um you're also eliciting, you know, those acute outputs matter. So having those higher out, power outputs, higher velocities um, at a time where you want the athlete to be able to demonstrate the highest power and velocity outputs possibly when you're emphasizing that piece uh, in training, you know, it, it does tend uh, to favor that. Um, and, you know, you're you're also opening yourself up to add things like potentiation complexes. So pairing it, you know, with a, with a jump or with, you know, stuff like that, that they are still uh, going to be able to maybe carry some sort of potentiating effect from the clusters because you're not overwhelming them with fatigue that then they can go and express higher outputs um, in those plyometric variations, which are going to be really, really important in that training. So it's also maybe a tool to let you um, get more out of those other things that maybe. Uh, involved in your training at that point in the year.
1: Did you survey any of the subjects on like training age, how long they've been training, what type of training they've been following sessions per week, you know, just like kind of the anecdotal history or life cycle. For the my subjects. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Uh, they, our requirements were that I mean, that they resistance trained, I think it was three days a week in a program that involved the back squads for at least two years. Um, but that really kind of like, that's very research speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of, you know, underrepresented our, our population a little bit. Like, I mean, we had some very, very trained people, um, that were coming in and training hard, uh, three or four days a week and, and following some pretty good training, uh, prior to participation in our study. And that, you know, it wasn't top to bottom necessarily, which is why you have those, those criteria, but, um, the large portion of our subject pools was, was Pretty experienced
3: lifters. Nice. Thanks. So you said you enjoy reading research, and I am sure your experience at school has really helped you mine good studies, bad studies. Mm -hmm. So what advice can you give our future PhD students or current coaches out there that can really take the good things away from research or just throw the bullshit out off of, you know, Instagram University
2: or yeah. the Journal yeah. well, that's of Instagram. Where, uh, that's where all the good PhDs are found is on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, don't you know that? That's, that's a lab now. <laughs> Insta lab. <laughs> you see the look on Texas' face? And you know what? Just the reason he threw this question at you is I don't know anybody that enjoys reading research more than Tex. I until I met I you and you got all excited and like Texas' eyes all lit up. He's like,
4: I love writing research too. That's why I always try to run into him at conferences because he teaches <laughs> me a bunch of stuff. It's awesome. I get to steal from him real quick. Inspiration. Uh, exactly.
2: I, I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, dude, that's like the first compliment that anybody's ever given you on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Wax. <Wags. laughs> <laughs> You're
4: welcome. You're welcome. Um, yeah, uh, you know i I've always um, valued uh, exploring peer reviewed research. It's not devaluing other forms of education, like books or blogs or podcasts, even, or, you know, I think that, you know, having a pretty robust approach to your education is where you're really going to get the most out of it and and be able to develop. But I think that probably in large part, the piece that's most uh, lacking in our field is the ability to read, uh, understand, interpret, and apply uh, peer-reviewed research, you know, it, it's kind of a an elephant in the room uh, to an extent, and uh, you know, I do think that some of that is grounded in our formal education. Um, you know, it, it it's very important to me, obviously, um, but one thing that uh, you know I developed doing a PhD was a filter and was a skill set to be able to read and understand these things better. Um, And I was also very fortunate to go to ETSU because they also uh, demand that you apply that information. And whenever you undertake um, research projects of your own, it has a practical application. And so, you know, being in that specific PhD program was really rewarding for me. Um, because it, it kind of really refined that specific piece of, of my learning. Because um, now I can go and I can find the research papers uh, myself and read them. You know, and it, it really opened up the door to help me educate myself by teaching me uh, those things. And I, and I think that not that you have to go get a PhD in order to read a research paper and understand it and apply it and interpret it and all that. But that is one of the things that uh, you're required to develop in a phd program and i think if you can find a really really good uh masters program that that skill set can also uh be developed there um and i think some of it is uh this is maybe me being an old man but uh you know being at a brick and mortar institution rather than online allows you to have like a mentor there with you to help you develop that filter. And I had some of the best filters that I got to be around day in day out, uh, for almost three years, you know, so, um, that, that component of it was, was really valuable. And I, you know, I, I encourage everybody. And whenever people ask me like, Oh, what do you think about this? What? And I actually, I actively try to send them research papers to just encourage people to, to give it a shot and, um, you know, see, see what they can glean from it. Cause a lot of times people will, provide really unique takes on uh, some really good research and then it refines all of our practice. So, you know, I kind of try to get coaches and myself included to read research as much as possible. That's probably my, my primary mode of education as much as I love books and I love podcasts and I love going to conferences and, you know, doing all that stuff. I I think we all need to be uh, grounded in that peer review piece.
3: So now, I guess, compare and contrast, you're back in the weight room. And I am. And I guess with applying the research, you've got to observe and you've got to stick to a certain mode. I don't know how much you can interfere and coach
2: when you're applying a research study, but now you've got to be more reactive and fluid in that And he's room. also working with baseball players who probably don't squat anywhere near one time their own body weight. I mean, as we know, collectively, baseball players are by far the laziest of all athletes. <laughs> so they're athletes now. But they're
1: the highest paid, aren't nah,
2: they? yeah, they're not really athletes though. It's organized grab ass. It's like uh, chess and golf. The Battle oh, of the Johns.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's not a good stance to take there. Uh.
2: <laughs> this is uh yeah, this is just our ongoing joke uh yeah. having trained with a bunch of baseball players and knowing them and then like playing football and working with these guys I'm always like you guys get to the park like 7 hours early and fuck around all day like like show up and fucking bang your heads out, you know. And the fact that they play uh when I lived in Tampa, uh, David Wells was my neighbor and uh, I used to go over and w- for well, Wells, he's training, he used to just get hammered and like he used to go to the park or uh, uh, I lived in Clearwater and he used to go to the park and I'm like I- any job that you can show up to and be hammered and still do your job. Ah, I don't like that's a tough one for me as a football player because we couldn't do that. Probably. Or maybe he's just that good. He was that fucking good and he just threw fucking through the All gas. Buyers.
4: Yep. That's right.
2: Yeah. Total outlier. And uh, so, yeah, uh, it's just been an ongoing joke for years about baseball players. I'm just like, it's organized grab ass. It's not a real sport. <laughs> so, no, but I'm just uh, I mean, but uh, there's been a huge culture change, especially in baseball, you know, where it was like, hey, don't lift weights. You're going to get tight. You don't want to be big in this. And then all of a sudden there was like this huge change where all of a sudden these guys I mean, I remember, you know, we shared a, um, a locker room with the Phillies. And, like, seeing those guys come in and lift weights and, like, I remember one year they were all pretty skinny and then the next year they were all pretty jacked. Yeah. And so I just saw this huge change. I was like, oh, these baseball guys actually look like they're kind of, you know, more put together. So it seems that training has become much more important within the last few years.
5: Yeah. And I think probably more than anything it gives them the ability uh, to tolerate and do more skill work. (laughs) That's probably what the physical training gives them, you know, more than anything, because like you said, they are such long days. Uh, We have to prepare
4: them to be able to, you know, deal with a lot of baseball. Um, But, you know, I think going back to your question, Tex, like, you know, in applying all of this stuff that the, the the man who masters principles. So, you know, the more that you can kind of have your, your practice grounded in an evidence-based approach, the more, Uh, versatile, the more fluid, the more, you know, you're going to be able to make sound decisions to uh, fit your environment. And, you know, that's probably been, you know, stepping out of the lab and back into the coaching circle. You know, I just have, um, because of my time at ETSU, I have such a better uh, foundation and knowledge and filter and, you know, just ability to make better decisions, hopefully. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, and that's really helpful in this setting in particular, just because the the athlete population uh, is is very unique. I mean, they are sometimes very young. Uh, they are sometimes more advanced in age and training age and uh, all of those things. And, you know, the, what you try to do uh, more than anything is to, uh, like I said, keep give them the ability to stay on the field and take all of that early work in so that they can continue to refine what they do with baseball, but also play over 100 games. Uh, and so it's a a really unique challenge in in that regard, and you fight a lot of monotony uh, with their day-to-day and with their routine. It's a very routine-oriented sport, and so, you know, a lot of what we can do really well uh, from the training standpoint is provide them variation, um, both in speed work and in resistance training, and so, you you know, you kind of look at those just basic tenets of training and figure out which one or ones you can exploit, uh, more than anything. And, you know, I think that that variation piece is a really important one just because of the uniqueness of the baseball, uh, world.
2: Use a lot of, uh, like the, the velocity based, um, principles with the baseball players. Cause I mean, they're, they're constantly trying to work on acceleration of like a, you know, a fixed weight object, like a baseball or a bat. So I wonder if there's like certain approaches that you would take saying like, hey, you know, like I, I knew in football, uh, you know, my ability to accelerate my hands was paramount. And I tried to be as strong and as fast as I could because I didn't know if the dude was going to be 260 or 360. Mm-hmm. So there always had to be this idea where I always think about like shot put baseball, uh, some of the sports where the weight that you're trying to overcome and move as fast as possible is kind of fixed. So I yep. didn't know if there was any specific things that you did in the weight room that you saw had huge transition over to like you know their speed development with a, you know a bat or throwing a ball.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm you know quite honestly, I'm way too new to uh, answer those questions in terms of like what's what's working, what's not working, and so you know I'm lean, I know you guys have had Dr. Smansky on here earlier. You know you lean on people's work like his to to give you a head start, and I'm fortunate to. Um, be surrounded by a lot, a lot of really, really, really good coaches that have been around this game and have produced more big leaguers than, you know, I, I ever will. And so leaning on them uh, to kind of point me in the directions of, of what needs to be done uh, to specifically prepare a big league hitter or a big league pitcher or, a, you know what I mean? So there, there are unique demands depending on position. Um, and then also, you know, my, my staff is somebody – that I'm leaning on as well. And I work under a great sports science coordinator with Austin Driggers, who's, um, doing a lot of the like on field sports science and trying to, uh, give us a better idea of, of what's happening there. But, uh, you know, being surrounded by a really, really, really good, uh, group of people is, is kind of how I can start to answer those questions, but I don't really think I have those, those answers right now, but that's what, <laughs> that's what priority number one, uh, this offseason is to, you know, make sure that these athletes are prepared for what's coming in spring training. And then we'll, uh, you know, continue to work towards performance solutions and, uh, answer those questions as, as they come up.
1: But man, you're, you're a product of the sport. You got, you got all sorts of new knowledge. What are you eager to like sink your teeth in? What do you think, you know, you're going to get these young guys doing that, uh, you know, may not be the answer, but you're curious to start to apply.
5: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, um, I know I'm always uh, bragging on people, but you know, I, I think that my time with Dr. Brad DeWeese working at the Olympic training site, he he's the kind of high performance guy over bobsled and all that. Uh, he taught me a lot, um, about speed development and having an organized curriculum to enhance, uh, on field sprint performance, which is really, really important in baseball. It's especially important, um, for us here because the outfield at Kauffman is huge. And so they got to be able to run in order to, to cover that ground. And so i um, kind of taking what I learned from Dr. DeWeese um, and applying it in this setting uh, with another, you know, very unique population, just like bobsled. Um, but, you know, Brad learned under Charlie Francis um, and has was a track and field coach for 10 years as well. So it's not like he's, you know, been just with, with bobsled either. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of what I'm really excited about is to, uh, to kind of see if we can provide these athletes with a, with a very systematic approach um, to their speed, because, you know, the it's all there in the weight room. It's all there with, you know, what they have to do on the field. that But that skill of sprinting is uh, one that takes a lot of patience to develop um, and takes a lot of details uh, to be coached. And so we're going to do our best to see if we can come up with a really, really, really uh, comprehensive and directed approach to developing their speed.
1: Nice. yeah, Cool.
3: So speaking of Szymanski, so you helped him or helped a a big group of coaches put out service or servant. So Mm -hmm. to our listeners who check back at that episode, we'll have to double, double check the number. Keep talking. I'll start looking. Okay. So, but servant versus service. So I feel this is a very important paper for any young coach to read so they don't get taken advantage of. They don't fall in any traps, especially if there's a a D3 strength coach out there. I know they got it hard. So Mm -hmm. explain to us your contribution to the paper and then what you would like our listeners to take away from it.
5: Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's really a credit to uh, Guy Hornsby and Ben Gleason and Mike Stone and, uh, you know, and Dr. Samansky and, and others on on the paper. That that paper had been in the works for a long, long time, um, and, and so uh, you know, my my contributions were were relatively uh, minimal and small. I mean, some minor edits here and there. Um, but uh, being a very big believer in the message, and being someone who's uh, you know, I'd like to think somewhat of a living example of the message that they're uh, trying to. To put out, you know, it was really humbling to be uh, a small part of the project because I think it is really important. we, you know, I, I send that paper out to <laughs> pretty much anybody who gives me an inquiry about coaching or about, you know, what this field is like. I, you know, tell them to to start there. So I, I'm glad that, you know, you feel the same way, Texas, because I do think that the more we can get that paper out there, uh, the better we're going to be able to perform even kind of our own internal audit on our field, which is probably uh, long overdue and, and something that, you know, we probably all need to, you know, collectively come together and and figure out what's our next step. And I think this paper is a good starting point.
1: Yeah. That was episode two fifty two. And then if you were to Google foo it, I mean, Google foo it, Google foo, like Kung Fu, but in the Google world. Ah, oh, I didn't know that that was actually a term now. Google foo it. It's always been, really? it's in, it's in Has Webster's ever heard that one. No, uh-huh. I'm
3: going to have to Google it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just what, what, what is the search term for folks listening? John, if they want to just kind of Google it up.
4: Oh, geez. Um, let's see. I have a, I can Google foo it myself. Let's see if, I mean, servant or service is probably a good place to start.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. Yeah. yeah. Cause I know I, I we, I've talked Cause to Cause we had, uh, yeah. Uh, on the podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and then we've had coaches
1: since that, like, Mhm. You know, it, just changing their perspective and then their approach to their sport coach or vice versa. Right. And,
3: and also the, the gym owner, the small business. And we've said it a lot. I know John's fired some clients, but you can't be afraid
1: when people are taking advantage of you. First off, John doesn't fire clients. He tells me to fire clients.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, what I like that's to do is I just make them so uncomfortable. They just never show up again. That also that's John's strategy. Yeah. And I'm like, why yeah. don't they just end in the workplace?
1: Yeah. yeah. For our listeners, that's John Wellborn, we're talking about, of course. <laughs> but, but There, there, yeah. there is a,
3: a big lack of appreciation, right? The, people think whoa, they whoa, can whoa, do whoa, this Whoa, whoa, whoa. When have I ever not appreciated
1: you? No, 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 no. no. I'm Literally about- all podcast. <laughs> Me and you both, buddy. Every hey, single day. we made a pact, and we will never, <laughs> right, we'll well, never break. <laughs>
3: Wags and I will have a conversation. There there are parents that don't respect a strength and conditioning coach, or they don't value it, Right. Mm-hmm. uh john tells his dad's story right it's just
2: counting to 10 over and over again right? yeah my right. dad uh, thought lifting weights was stupid and anybody that lifted weights was a moron because it was just counting to 10 over and over again and you have to be of a small brain to That's really so want to- <laughs> my dad uh, my dad is uh or was uh passed away is um inherently like the type of smart ass that would say things and they wouldn't resonate for like days weeks or even years and then you think back and be like I think he was fucking smart man. And he would just like, he, he was really good at it and, uh, he could just fucking lay bombs. But I remember like, um, I think, uh, I think it was a third or fourth year in the NFL. I went up to him and bought him a Porsche. And I remember when I slid the keys across for him, I was like, that's what counting the 10 will get you.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I was
2: like, maybe you should have counted 10, uh, more often. And right. he kind of was right. like, son of a bitch. And then I made yeah. him pay the bill for the dinner. But I mean, like things like that, like I think, uh, um, and this is, this is what I always ran into with a lot of parents, especially owning a gym, is people that don't have an inherent knowledge about what you do, but yet are intelligent and successful in other ways, kind of believe that that, that permeates to everything. That because yep. I'm successful in business or I'm, you know, I'm a well-to-do or this, uh, you know, I should have the powers of perception for everything. So therefore, you know, I can make assessments on this. And I remember running into it and being like, ah, like you you have no fucking practical understanding of what we're doing or how it all works. Why do you think you're an expert? You're like standing up and defending yourself in court for a murder trial. No, you go hire somebody like my brother because that's what they fucking do. And I think people just don't inherently value it. And uh, they think they know everything because they watch TV and we have the internet and Instagram. And I think they just don't really necessarily know how it all works. And they also, uh, we also live in this iPhone generation where everything is so quick to happen. And they don't realize that training is this, like multi-year process of like progression. And it's like, ah, how long does it take to get strong? I I don't know. Like, yeah.
1: And it also depends where you're starting. Like if you're totally fucked, you have to unfuck yourself too, which is even a longer journey.
2: You yeah. know, yeah. well, I mean, I, I think about uh, when Christian Molfetta is one of the kids that uh, or one of the dads who trained with us for years. I remember he brought his son in at like 13 and said, hey, can we do something? And we literally just put him on a you know, basic linear progression and let him just squat fives and kind of progressed. Um, you know, kids, you know, earned a scholarship to go play baseball at Stanford. And uh, he was super strong, moved really well. And I remember his dad hit me up and was like, uh, the coach commented he lifts weights very well. Like somebody obviously took the time to teach him and he's like, he did, he just did the basics and learned to, you know, to deadlift and to pull and all the basics. And it it, it wasn't sexy, but the kid got really strong. We worked on a bunch of speed work and jumps. And like when he got to college and he was, you know, 18 years old, they were like, this kid's great. Like we don't have to go back and fucking fix a bunch of nonsense. Right. And, uh, but he's like, he was also into the process and understood it. Whereas I think a lot of parents, like I was thinking about, uh, you know, my daughters are seven now and they play you know indoor soccer and what and these parents get so excited and they're over there this and they're like what do you think i'm like i don't know they're seven like let's just let them have fun <laughs> there's going to be a day when like this shit isn't fun so let's let them have fun now and these parents are like what are you talking about i'm like well oh, what fucking yeah. have, i know a little oh, bit yeah, about this shit
4: absolutely right i mean I, I don't i don't have children but that that fun piece is underrated uh yeah. for sure because you know if they if they enjoy practices and things like that at that point you're setting them up to enjoy a long-term preparation process you know later on and I, you know, i'm excited next week i get to speak at coaches college but you know joe eisenman and some other long-term athlete development people are speaking uh there and uh you know, I, I i think those people actually you know they have a lot of really good information to put out there and uh that we need to start listening to hopefully you know do some of these simple things a little bit better with
2: with the youth. uh, When you start working like, and and I know your study wasn't with beginners, it was more advanced athletes, but I, I have always run into this piece. Uh, It's very hard to start stressing velocity based training and looking for like compensatory acceleration and speed unless they understand technique. And that technique is only developed by thousands of repetitions of movement because Mm -hmm. there's too much variation. And so where we saw some of the beginning kids, like, the the first rep looked nothing like the, the the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth rep, and even over the course of days, like seeing their squat on a Monday compared to a Thursday, and it's like every rep looked different until all of a sudden they they understood like how to do it, and they learned you know uh, you know muscle memory, motor unit you know, recruitment, you know programming. They understood you know bar position and all these key factors. The so weight got heavy enough to where you know the weight started dictating the natural you know path opposed from them mm-hmm. trying to you know dictate it. And uh, what I I kind of caution is when people start looking at like, you know, speed work and velocity based and even some of like, um, I think that's how Louis Simmons and the West Side guys started using their accommodating resistance in a box squat so that they could, you know, just sit on the box in the same place and stand up as violently as you can. So they didn't necessarily have to coach technique and they could get beginners to do more speed work. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, I just wonder if like, at which point do you kind of progress them and say, Hey, you know, like we learned what we needed to now we have the raw material, the foundation to be able to get into something like a velocity based system.
4: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think you ever stop coaching technique. <laughs> you know, That's doing simple really, really well is very underrated. Um, and so, you know, being as detail oriented with the technique, on day one, as you are on day thousand is going to allow you to get more out of, uh, all, all of the other aspects of training that you're, that you're manipulating or that you're introducing. And so like, I, I, I don't think I ever necessarily go away from that. Maybe that's like my, my OCD or my <laughs> over you know control freak of, you know, being, being with those details, but, um, you know, it, especially being around Brad, you know, working with Olympians, he coaches every fine detail of technique with people who are getting ready to go to the Olympics, who have won medals, who have, you know, so um, that's where I kind of am coming from with that, that I don't think necessarily we ever ever graduate from it. I think what happens more than anything is when we uh, move on to a VBT or an AEL or, you know, something like that, that we get really excited as coaches about the new new tactic, the new strategy, and then we forget <laughs> kind of what got us there. And so then we kind of make these little compromises that we're even maybe unaware of uh, for the sake of barbell velocity, for the sake of an extra 5% on the overload. Um, and, and so that's where like having that detail-oriented technique first approach is gonna always, always, always help you. Um, and obviously, especially early on, because fixing bad technique is very difficult. Um, and, and so, like, yeah, you're right, especially early on. But I, I would almost say it never, never really goes away. Never-ending process. You
1: got anything, Dex?
3: You talk a lot about. Uh, you said you're going to speak. You've spoke. What can our listeners? Seek you out to look forward to. Are you speak in any other conferences that they can get the get out to?
4: Yeah, so I'm at um, Coaches College next week, which is uh, the Center of Excellence for Sports Science and Coach Education at East Tennessee State University. That's their uh, annual conference. Uh, it should be a, a really cool talk. I'm kind of partnering with Dr. Deweese. He's uh, kind of outlining the training process for one of the athletes, and I'm going to talk about. I served in more of like a sports science role, uh, on Brad's staff kind of oversaw the athlete monitoring piece. So I'm going to talk about kind of a, a case study with all the monitoring data with jumps, with poles, with ultrasound, with all that stuff, body comp, um, as we moved through a six month period of training, um, and the athlete was really, really high level. So makes it even, even more interesting. Um, but then after that, I, uh, I think I have a little bit of a break and I probably needed to, uh, get ready for spring training and, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, my, my new job is, is priority number one here. Um, and so, um, I, have got a lot to get done. We've got a lot of, uh, you know, things to get off the ground before all of our, even our coaches come back, uh, there for spring training, but I'm always accessible, uh, via email or uh, Twitter is kind of my social media of choice. I haven't yet graduated, uh, to Instagram. Maybe I, I have an Instagram account, but I've yet to, I've yet to post. Um, but if people want to reach out to me there, like I, I, I like talking training with just about anybody. Cause I tend to learn more than, uh, more than anything. And so like, that's, I, I love it when people reach out and make connections.
1: Oh, thanks, John. Not you, well-worn Wags. <laughs> what are you good for over there, big Nothing.
2: guy? Nothing. I'm a
4: fucking hack.
1: Wear the noisiest coat in the world to a fucking podcast. Well, Kelly just gets rid of this anyway. Oh, yeah. She cuts oh, me out point. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, John, thanks a bunch for jumping on. And Power Athlete Nation, don't be shy. Remember, pick up the fucking phone or Twitter and reach out if you, if you think Wags can help you out. Right? So, it's again, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, man.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, thank you, guys. This is a lot of fun, and I, I hope you get warmer. You guys, you guys look real cold over there, but oh, I guess that's Austin in the well, winter. Weather update.
1: Well, it's it, it's actually pretty nice outside, but we're down a little bit and on a concrete slab that has a bunch of cold in it, and I think that cold just
2: You think up. so? I just figured, you know, I mean, mm. I don't know. I just figured maybe it's ch- Texas' uh, chilly personality. You're wearing a poofy coat. What, what, I'm not allowed to wear a puffy coat? You're wearing a pirate shirt, a puppy pirate
1: shirt. <laughs> yeah, but it looks cool.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, And you know what? Tex is going to be uh, clean shaven here shortly. So.
1: Oh, wax.
2: Oh, you, you thought we forgot. Wax him. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. I, I hired a lady who's coming. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Wags, does you.
1: Wags know about the wax stack? Uh,
2: no. Did you know that uh, Tex raised $20,000, or people donated twenty grand, to have Tex wax his whole upper body, armpits, forearms, no,
4: armpits. and his beard? Wow. You can't I wax a beard. Congratulations yeah. on the donations. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all towards really pediatric or yeah. childhood cancer. Yeah. It's it's a great really cause. Good yeah. Work.
1: And now we get to see the hairless okay. McQuoken, which is I mean, like, how ever since is I first laid eyes on you, buddy, I just wanted to know what does this man look like with no body hair?
2: <sighs> is it gonna be like, like I know I'm not the only one. Is it gonna be like when you shave a lion or a bear? Have you ever <laughs> seen how scary a bear is when you shave it?
1: Or is it going to be like that hairless fucking gorilla who's totally jacked?
2: That's probably it. <laughs> with, with the huge testicles?
1: Yeah, that. but sans testes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but All right, Wags, well, let us go, brother. Thank Thanks you.
4: again. Yeah, Power Thanks for having me on. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds all right. good. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. All right, bye. 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 Bye.
0: Bye. Bye Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Find out where Dr. John Waggle is headed next on the speaker circuit or reach out with any questions you may have by contacting him via Twitter at John P. Waggle. And you guys, we are just a few days away from the Power Athlete Symposium, which means that I'm not going to have anything to talk about for this outro anymore. I mean, certainly there'll be a period of time where we're recapping the 2018 Power Athlete Symposium quickly followed by promos for the 2019 Power Athlete Symposium. But there will be a brief time where I am at a loss. So looking forward to seeing everyone next week. And until next time, bye. Make this run
2: time. A little pill for them little